0: Welcome to the REACH Podcast with your pastor, Matt O'Mealy. The book of Psalms is the longest book in the Bible, 150 chapters, 2,461 verses. Uh, so covering it over the next 13 weeks is totally possible. So you guys just have to listen fast. Uh, Taylor and I will preach really quick. Um yeah, there's not enough time to get through all of it, but I think there is enough time for us to understand the composition and the function of the Book of Psalms, which is why I wanted to check out that video. It's a it's a good explainer of the story arc of the Book of Psalms, but also how that story arc uh, leads us on a bit of a cliffhanger as to what is coming next, and that is, of course, the Messiah. That is Jesus in. Uh, The word psalm in the Greek, it means a a poem that is sung to musical accompaniment, or in Hebrew, it is the term of praises. That's what they call it in the Greek or the Hebrew Old Testament. And this is a collection of songs, of of poems that grew over time. Uh, They were compiled over the history of Israel. And uh, most, most likely kind of put together in its final form somewhere during the exile. And that was even what was, what was shown on the video we just watched. Uh, that was when they kind of put it together to show the story arc of what God was doing. Uh, what God was doing with his covenant people. His covenant people that he would turn uh, them, even in their lament, even in their joy, that in all those things that they were called to turn to him. In each one of the Psalms, the focal point is faith in the Lord, whether that's a good psalm or a bad psalm, whether it's a high point or a low point in Israel's history, it is to turn and look at the Lord in faith. You see, the psalms, they teach us ultimately to have a personal relationship with God as we tell him all of our hurts, all of our needs, as we meditate on his word, as we meditate on his greatness and his glory and on the history of his covenant faithfulness to his people there are many examples of Christ in the Psalms. Uh, Christ even points to himself as being in the Psalms, that he completes the uh, law and the prophets as well as the Psalms. He says that in in Luke 24, 44, that he he is that uh, completion of the Psalms. Uh, He is mentioned as the crucified Savior in Psalm 22. He's mentioned as the shepherd in Psalm 23, the sacrifice in Psalms 40. Uh, He is the high priest of Psalm 110, and he is the stone in Psalm 118, and he is the coming king in Psalm 2, which we are reading tonight. There's various special use cases for different psalms. There's different purposes in the psalms collection, such as songs of ascent that the Jewish pilgrims would, would read or recite on their way to the festivals in Jerusalem for Passover and other things. There are imprecatory psalms, which are the psalms of uh, the people of God saying, How long, O Lord? Why don't you rain down justice on the, on the evildoers? Those are uh, God's people being mad at the brokenness around them, the imprecatory psalms. Uh, so calling for wrath, God's wrath upon the sin around them. And uh, there's other songs that, that celebrate the virtues of God, of his word, of his faithfulness, and, and many other things. So the book of Psalms, it's a full range of various emotions and laments and uh, praises and poetry. And in that, we learn that we don't have to ignore our suffering or pre- pretend that it doesn't exist because the people whose words were recorded as they wrestled with life— they were showing their, their pain, their suffering, as well as their joy. But in all of those things, in their faith, they looked towards the messianic king and his coming. An important idea that I want us to learn as we do this big overview of the book of Psalms is to learn about the organization of Psalms, the purpose of it, and the basis of how it's organized and why it's organized the way it is. There is a collection of Psalms uh, that are in five different books, if you, if you skim through your modern Bibles. uh, It will say like book one, two, three, four, five. And so I want to understand what's going on with those and why they are the way they are, because it tells a story. It poetically tells the story arc of God's love and his faithfulness to his people through their wrestling, through their hope, through their fear, through their doubts, through their victory and laments. His people find hope in the Lord. There is also an intro, Psalms 1 and 2, that's what we're doing tonight, and there is also a bit of an outro, which is Psalms 146 through 50 of talking about uh, God's victory, his vic- the victorious nature of who God is. And so just as an overview, as you understand what I'm talking about, we have the first book is Psalms, which they would normally say 1, but we're going to look at 1 and 2 as the intro, but 3 through 41, they are a call to covenant faithfulness. We'll talk about that in a coming sermon as well. They praise the beauty of God's law. Uh, The second book, which is Psalms 42 through 72, they are looking at the hope of the messianic coming king that will fulfill God's promises. Uh, The third book, 73 through 89, this is the low point from the perspective of, of the Israelites being in exile, yet remembering God's promises to not abandon them, to not abandon the line of David. So they are seeking God's forgiveness and they are hoping in the Messiah. And then book four, which is 90 through 106, it is the return to Israel's roots of seeking God, seeking out his mercy, and declaring him as the king over all creation. And then book five, which is 107 to the end, to 150, they are songs of praise. They declare God's goodness. They uh, talk about the greatness of God's word. That's what Psalms 119 is, a really long one, talking about God's great word, his law, the Torah, essentially. And, uh, and then today, we're going to look at the reflections of Psalms 1 and 2 and how that essentially is the setup for the whole book of Psalms, and you'll see that repeated throughout the entire book. So if you will, turn with me to Psalms 1 and 2, and we will kick it straight up. All right, Psalms 1, starting in verse 1. I'm going to go ahead and read both 1 and 2, and then we'll kind of backtrack a little bit. It says, "'Blessed is the man.'" who walks in the council, who walks not in the council of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all he does, he prospers. So the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Chapter 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take, together, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let's, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a fantastic intro to the collection of the book of Psalms. It has a, it's a very interesting, you read both of them together, they start and end with the same word, blessed. Blessed is the man who walks in the way of the Lord, right? And then blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. It's a fantastic start to the book of Psalms. This idea of, of what are we looking for through the book of Psalms? It's the wrestling with what we do in life, which is to listen to the law of God, listen to the word of God, be faithful to that, and see God work through those things. We see this picture. In the gospel, don't we? We see this picture of God's faithfulness. Who is the one, looking in chapter one, who is the one who is planted in the Lord that is righteous? Who is the son in chapter two that is set in dominion over all nations in whom the faithful can take refuge? Who is that pointing to? The scriptures tell us. They tell us to rely on him, the anointed, the Messiah, the one who on on him was laid the iniquity of us all, as Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53. So number one, what we're going to see tonight is that God blesses the godly. But first, let's define our terms a little bit of what is godliness. What is the godly? Godliness is a term that's frequently mentioned in the Bible, especially the New Testament epistles. Those are the letters uh, between Acts, so starting with uh Romans all the way to uh, 3 John. So that whole big chunk there in the New Testament, the epistles, it talks about godliness often. Uh, It is a positive God-honoring manner of life, issuing from a true knowledge of who God is and his grace to us in Jesus Christ alone. This term of godliness, it's mentioned in Peter's list of effective discipleship and sanctification that we talked about last week at our bonfire night, Uh, It is listed there because it shows a genuine devotion to God and to those made in his image, which transforms our relationship and our behavior in every context. See, godliness in the ancient pagan idea of it uh, pagan literature looked at godliness it meant to show proper caution or fear or reverence towards the gods because piety involved giving offering and sacrifices and other cultic activities so that way you stayed in good favor with the gods it meant honoring the gods respecting the elders the rulers uh, kind of just staying in good graces with the with the culture and stuff that way you were protected by the gods but when this terminology is used in the Bible there is a different notion of fear or respect to be intended with that, because the one true God, the creator and the redeemer, he requires an active obedience to his revealed will and a personal devotion that per, that surpasses just mere lip service and cultural following that the pagans would have been doing. So that way they just stayed in good graces with the God so that they were blessed. This is, this is a, a life-giving, a life-altering service to the Lord. Jesus is the only true godly one. The one whose prayers were heard because of his godly fear or reverent submission to his heavenly father. His death and his heavenly exaltation make it possible for others to offer prayers to God. He is our heavenly intercessor because he is so godly, he gets to be in the presence of God the father. And so a godly person, a godly disciple is one who with reverence and awe has acceptable Service and worship of Jesus and Jesus alone. You see, ungodliness brings the wrath of God because it involves suppressing the truth about who God is, worshiping created things rather than the Creator, and pursuing unrighteous things like unrighteous relationships and unrighteous behaviors. It is a condition from which we can only be rescued by trusting in Jesus, the one who justifies the ungodly. Okay, so. Now that we got the big definitional thing out of the way, because one of the difficulties as a New Testament, as on on this side of the resurrection, as a New Testament believer, in looking at the Old Testament, things like Psalms, things like Proverbs, we we often look at it as just a mere algebra equation. You know, put this thing in, get this thing out. A plus B equals C. uh, But that's not what it is. Because ultimately, and and Miriam said that earlier, right before we sing the last song, that only through Jesus... Are we allowed to approach God only through Christ and Christ alone can we be seen as godly because unlike the pagan idea of godliness it's not what I do to appease the gods it's what Christ has done on my behalf and underneath his shadow underneath his blood I too can be godly or connected to and and in the in the knowledge of the will of the father not by what I do but by what he has done for us. So what we're looking at here in Psalm 1, it is a call to obedience and to godliness, as we've now defined it, not to earn God's salvation, not to earn God's mercy, but because we understand who God is. It is a thing of wisdom in our obedience. Verse 1 is talking about the godly is the person who stands firm, not on himself, but on the Lord. And it contrasts the ungodly who will not only be judged, but will perish, as it says in verse 6 of chapter 1. There is a a strict contrast here. There is a a contrasting starting and ending of this psalm where the blessed person is contrasted with the perishing person. This reflects the imagery of the fruit bearing tree in the middle here, where it is doing something productive and beautiful and useful versus the, the flaky, worthless outside chaff of the wheat that just blows away in the wind. It does nothing good. The godly, in spite of their sin, will be blessed with spiritual blessings as they walk in submission to the Lord the way that he intended. It makes them a strong tree as they are fed by the Lord, by the Spirit, not on their own doing, but because of what Jesus has done, unlike the world who builds themselves upon themselves, and they are shaken and blown away. We see that the righteous or the godly man is the one who ignores distractions and derisions from the world, and their blessing and their hope is found in the Lord and not in themselves. This maturity that it's being talked about here in verse 1 and 2, his delight being in the law of the Lord, he is not swayed by the world around him. Uh, This maturity, it plants them to be productive. It plants them with deep roots so that they are not easily shaken. They're like a healthy tree this poetically laid out metaphor it makes us think of the difficulties of the path of righteousness and then the path of darkness the difficulty of being planted is the path to the the to heaven is a narrow path versus the path to Uh, destruction is the wide path that that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. It is those that are counted as wicked, they they will be lost. They will be swept away, blown away because they are taking the easy path and not rooting themselves and doing that difficult work. There is a visual downward progression here in verse 1 and 2 that show us what it looks like to walk in sin and selfishness. They walk, they stand, and then they sit. So the wicked— in verse 1, they are morally backwards. They are evil. They, they say what is evil is good, and what is good is evil. That's where it says, uh, blessed is man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. The wicked is the person who calls what is good evil and evil good. And then the second part is, nor stands in the way of sinners. A sinner is a person who misses a target, a target which the loving God uh, wants us to shoot at is to love him and to love others. Uh, I always point that out. And then finally, we see that, that this person, the unwise person, the ungodly person, they, they don't sit in the seat of, sco- of scoffers or of mockers. The, a mocker or a scoffer, it's a person who is uh, perpetually negative about everything. They can't see the beauty for what it is. They're so cynical, they think they can see through everything and nothing is good enough for them. They can't appreciate beauty anymore. They're jaded towards anything that's not like themselves or their preferences. So the wise, godly person does not sit in the seat of mockers. As one commentator put it, he says, This signifies a progression from casual influence of ungodly people to collusion with them in their scorn against the righteous one who is not characterized by this evil is influenced uh, this evil influence is blessed that is he is right with god and enjoys a spiritual peace and joy that results from that relationship so the walking progress the forward momentum of the believer of the person of faith of the godly shows that as we meditate on god's word we grow and we progress and we mature which is what brings us into that idea of those deep roots like a tree planted by streams of water. This described then as a delight meditation. There is a delight and a meditation. A meditation spiritually is kind of like a digestion of what's going on here. When you meditate, you digest and you chew on the word of God and you apply it to your life, not just externally, not just in the things that we do. It's not behavior modification, but it's changing who you are on a deeper spiritual level there is an interesting poetic symmetry in verse two, where it says that he delights on the instruction, and on the instruction, he meditates. He delights in the instruction, on the instruction, he meditates. So if you like the thing, then you're going to think about it a lot. And if you think about it a lot, that means you're going to learn it and apply it. And if you're learning it and applying it a lot, that means you probably enjoy the thing. And so on and on it goes. There is a Symmetry there, and this makes my mind jump immediately to what we're told to do in the New Testament in First Corinthians or First Thessalonians five seventeen, which is what? Anyone? First Thessalonians five seventeen. Bible drill. It's a long one. Pray continually. It's not a long one. <laughs> so, as a as a New Testament believer, and I'm, th- I'm thinking about this Old Testament psalm of meditating on the Lord's word, delighting in the Lord's word. It makes me think about how do I day in and day out walk with the Father? Yes, the Bible, but also First Thessalonians 5.17, I pray continually all at all points during the day, spending my time meditating on the Lord and His call in my life. So how does this play out practically? Verse 3 tells us, he says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and in its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Verse three tells us that the godly stands firm and mature. They produce fruit and the wicked produce nothing. The wicked produce nothing and they are in verse four like chaff blown away by the wind. This is garden language, garden language in the Old Testament. Where does that put our mind to? It sends us to the garden of Eden because at that point, the starting point is the growth of the roots of digging into the uh, the earth where the water of life is. So blessed is the one then who has a relationship with the creator who doesn't look for life in the desert, dried up wasteland of the world, but goes straight to the source and has a deep connection to the, riv- the river of life, to the waters of life, to Christ, to the Holy Spirit himself. And this takes us to the contrast. Point number two, God judges the ungodly. Let's look at four through six again. It says, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So as we've already mentioned, there is a downward slope of the wicked, right? There's a distinction between the godly and the ungodly. If you continue on this metaphor, you'll see that the ungodly are the ones that are easily shaken, as we've been talking about. The godly are the ones that are not easily shaken. They are planted firmly with roots deep into the ground. John the Baptist uses the same metaphor in Matthew 3, 10 through 12, where he describes God as the harvester who is inspecting the trees and the harvest, and whatever is unfruitful and useless will be cut down and burned in the fire. There's a repetition of metaphor in the Bible, and that's one of them, and it is a very useful thing to see how it continues to play itself out. We see it in the Old Testament here in Psalms 1 and 2, and then we see John call it out. We see Jesus also say the same thing. Uh, Jesus says in, in John 5, 24, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes, he, him who sent me has eternal life, and he does not come to judgment, but has passed from life to death. So in thinking about this impending judgment that's coming, where we could be chopped down because we're being unfruitful, Jesus says, not so for those who believe in me. Because if you believe in me, you have eternal life, and the judgment against you will not come because you've passed from death to life. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 1 through 2, he says, therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So there is no need for us to be fearful. But who does need to be fearful? The ungodly. Why? Because they have, bla- they have based their life, they have based their, their meditation, the things that they care about on themselves. Their roots are not deep. They're like chaff. They are blown away. Hebrews 10.27 says, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That is what waits for the ungodly, but not so for those who find themselves in Christ. Whether a person wants to admit belief in the supernatural or not, it doesn't matter. They innately know at a deep level that in light of eternity, there is something much bigger than them. The beauty of the gospel, though, is that we don't have to figure that out on our own. We don't have to solve that. We're not left alone. Christ stepped out of eternity to help us plant our roots deep in who he is. This idea that the ungodly will not stand in judgment, that doesn't mean that they won't be judged. That means that they won't be able to stand up under it as uh, just recently, both Taylor and I have preached about a similar thing, that God's wrath and God's mercy is coming. The way Taylor said it was, God's mercy is here and he's telling you to get over here. The mercy's coming, come stand over under the mercy. The way I saw it was, the, it's coming down and it's gonna smash everyone if they don't get in the right spot, but God's mercy is telling you where to stand. So that way the mercy, will pa- the mercy is that, that window of the falling building on you in the, in the, uh, in the uh, uh, action movie. Because God's wrath is coming. It's going to smash us unless we listen to God. So the, the ungodly will not stand in judgment because they will be crushed in judgment. All this is connected to the imagery throughout the whole Bible. This imagery of harvest, of separating the wheat from the tares, of judging the unproductive and lazy servants, of cutting down the unfruitful trees, and so on and so forth. Are we then judged by our performance? Yes, if you stubbornly and pridefully try to stand alone under your own power. But those who are known by the Lord, verse 6, are faithfully and are faithfully dependent on the Lord and not themselves. They will be able to stand in judgment because they are not being judged. They have mercy coming down upon them. Verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The gospel truth here then is that God knows those who humbly turn to him in faith. Jesus says in John 10 that he knows his sheep. And in direct contrast in Matthew 7:23 of the lost, he says, I never knew you. In God's knowledge of the godly, he has plans of fruitful righteousness for them, of growth. Does that mean health, wealth, and prosperity? No, not at all. But does that mean in being more like Jesus? The most fruitful of all trees under whose shade we want to rest and to grow? Yes, it means becoming like Jesus. There's clearly only two paths here looking at Psalms 1 and Psalm 2. The difference of the two paths is what we meditate on. The result of a fruitful life will be blessing for others, not just ourselves. Jesus connects this theme that we see in Psalms 1 and 2 even in the Sermon on the Mount. He starts out the Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew chapter 5, talking about blessed is, so on and so forth. He names a lot of people. And then he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount by clarifying on those who will perish. Who will perish? Those who don't listen to him, who are not building themselves upon him, the rock. They will be shaken and fall like a house built upon the sand. Those who plant themselves in him, They will be connected to streams of living water, as he calls himself in John 7. This imagery that's in Psalms is repeated over and over in the New Testament and points directly to a relationship with the Creator, with the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, making us effective and productive disciples and Christ followers, fruitful beyond what we could possibly do on our own. The humbling point that needs to be made here is contrary to our modern and pragmatic view. That we assume, because we're rational creatures, that if we make the right decisions and we're given the right information, then we're going to come out fine on the other end of things. But that's just not true. The reality of Scripture and observance of human nature alone show us that our selfish minds and our limited perspective, not to mention our sin in our hearts, we usually choose the easy path we usually choose the path of least resistance in the moment, although it costs us the most in the end. The godly contrast between the one who delights in the law of the Lord and then the one who leads a life of selfishness is clearly seen in what is the greatest commandment. What does everything boil down to? It's loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything that we are, and loving our neighbor likewise as ourselves. The contrast of that is a person who builds their life upon themselves. They're easily shaken, they're easily blown away like chaff. What is chaff again, by the way? It is the outside part of the wheat, it's worthless. Uh, If you don't process much wheat in your life, uh, maybe you uh, are familiar with coffee grounds. I am, I freaking love coffee. Uh, Coffee is the best part of waking up, right? It's not Folgers, though, but, but coffee. Uh, it's fantastic. So when you grind coffee, have you ever noticed uh, freshly ground coffee that there's like a, a cloud of poofiness that goes around there? Uh, it's like little flaky stuff, not really coffee grounds. That, that's called, uh, they call it lots of things uh, like silverback or whatever. There's lots of things, but essentially it's the chaff of the coffee. It's the husk on the outside of the coffee bean, which is a cherry seed, FYI. Uh, but that stuff, if you can get that, don't worry about that cloud of poofy stuff. You don't want it because it actually makes your coffee taste bad. So if you can like blow it off, it's no good. It's the chaff. It it easily is literally blown away. There's a trick to having better brewed coffee. You grind it and then you take your little bin that you ground into and then you just kind of hold it and you just blow. And then the chaff just blows out, but the good stuff stays there because it's heavier. It's weightier. It's not going anywhere. I mean, if you like stick a a leaf blower in there, it's going to blow. But from my own blowing on it into that box uh, of my grinder, the the coffee grounds aren't going anywhere, but the chaff, the non-good stuff, the stuff that essentially tastes like I'm drinking leaf water, uh, that blows away. It's worthless. We don't want that. So the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous is not only are we fruitful or not fruitful, but what we do produce, it's not good. It's not good for anything. It doesn't serve anyone. It holds no real purpose. So don't wrongly assume that just because we know theological truths that it will make us godly people. Jesus challenges this idea of empty obedience when he calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs and that they look like they know lots of good things, but their hearts are far from God. Their hearts are far from love of their neighbor. It shows what they truly love, and that is themselves and the way they look. This brings us on to the next point, into, into chapter 2 or Psalms 2, Uh, what we will look look at is the foolish, ungodly people and their prideful opposition to the Lord. Their prideful opposition to the Lord. Let's read the first few verses here again in Psalm 2. He says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the high heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, Ask for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel." So this brings us to point number three, God opposes the proud. Immediately my mind, as I was reading this, went to one of my favorite books, which is James, into one of my favorite chapters, which is James 4, James 4, 6. James is quoting some sections of the Old Testament where he points out that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that is what we see here in Psalm 2. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The nations are sinful as they rage against their creator. Man's governments and their institutions, they're full of sinful people who stand in rebellion to the Lord. One commentary put it this way. He says, from the beginning of human history, man has rebelled against God in a selfish desire for freedom. Our first parents wanted freedom, and in their disobedience, they inherited slavery. Paul says in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So from the ungodliness, from the, the the fruit of their ungodliness, is they are against the truth. Does this remind you of what we were looking at in Psalm 1? That the wicked are those who call what is godly evil and what is evil godly? Paul goes on to say in Romans 1:25, because they, the ungodly, have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they have worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. See, Satan accomplished his goal when he lied to Adam and Eve saying that they would be like God. And as they became like God, they worshiped themselves in their sinful knowledge. Man tries in vain to avoid this reality of the fact that they are underneath God's laws and there's nothing they can do about it. That's why the Lord sits in heaven and laughs. Note the contrast between what is the psalmist telling us here. There is a tumultuous chaos that we see in verses 1 and 2 that godly people are not a part of this. The the kingdoms of man, they fight against God. They plot in vain. They want to break their bonds from the Lord, but the Lord just sits there and laughs. God remains in authority over us, whether we accept that or not. We often hear today about this existential threat of us trying to be on the right side of history. But in the view of eternity, who's the one that writes or controls history in the end? God speaks through creation and conscience, and his word, will be ju- uh, and, and, his word and we will be judged if we don't listen to him. If we don't listen to his word, if we don't meditate on it day and night, God is speaking today through the grace of Christ. We have the opportunity to respond to that. But one day, grace will cease and he will begin to speak judgment. Verse five points out this coming judgment. He says, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifying them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In Romans 1, as we were looking at a second ago, God's wrath is coming against man's unrighteousness. He gave man up to their unrighteousness to, to, in the moment, if you want to have sin, go for it. Have all the sin you want. That's what God has given us. But someday, the inevitability of our rebellion is going to be separation from God for all eternity. And that is what true, torturous hell is, separation from the Lord in the New Testament, as you read the Gospels, it's almost like the worldly powers won when Jesus died. But his death, burial, and resurrection is actually the main point of humiliation for the enemy. Colossians two fifteen says he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Ephesians two uh, one. 20 and 21, it says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to to come. And so Jesus is clearly the one that is being sat upon the throne in Zion. He is the Messiah against whom no one will stand, the Messiah who will take possession of all peoples. In spite of their best efforts, they cannot win against Christ. Jesus Christ not only reigns, but he's also the judge of all nations. And this relates to the idea that we see in Daniel 2, 44. In my uh, Sunday school class, we've been going through the book of Mark. And uh, we're at the point where Jesus talks about himself being the stone that the builders rejected. And that harkens back to a lot of things in the Old Testament. But one of the things in particular is the stone in the vision that Nebuchadnezzar has in Daniel, where the nations who stand proud against the God of all creation, when they, in the vision of the statue of made of different metals, and so on and so forth, down to the clay feet, and then a stone that was cut from a mountain that was cut by no human hands comes and crushes the entire statue, and that is Jesus Christ. Daniel interprets that Nebuchadnezzar's dream is that the stone is smashing everything that would try and stand against the Lord, that is the anointed, the one who God puts upon the throne that no other kingdom can stand against. In Matthew 4, when Jesus is being tempted by Satan, Satan tries to offer him a shortcut to rule the nations, which is bow to Satan, the the ruler of, you know, the the heir at this time in the world, but not forever. He tries to give him a shortcut, and Jesus, of course, does not take that, but he goes the distance, he does the hard path, and he purchases us as his inheritance by his own sacrificial death. The stone that the builders rejected is coming, and it will crush all those who stand against him, including all of the nations, all the things that man has built, all the worthless chaff that we have tried to build up on our own, because... God blesses the godly, God judges the ungodly, and God opposes the proud. But let's see this beautiful symmetry here in the Psalms one more time. Point number four, God gives grace to the humble. Starting again in verse 10, it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here God is telling man, don't be dumb. Don't depend on your own intelligence, on your own wisdom. You're so short-sighted. There's no way you could possibly know the answers to things. There's no way you could possibly stand against God. He laughs at your attempt. As he says, therefore be warned, kiss the son and turn to him. Again, going to Romans 1, Paul says this in Romans 1, 21, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God in images of resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We have a lot of knowledge of wisdom, but what's the difference between wisdom and knowledge? What's the difference between wisdom and knowledge? What Paul is talking about here is people that think they know a whole lot really are not wise. That is why the psalmist warns us, be wise. Don't listen to yourself. Don't listen to the world. Listen to the Lord. What is the difference between wisdom and knowledge? Wisdom is the ability to use knowledge for its best purposes. The ability to use knowledge for its best purposes, knowledge that is especially useful when it's outside of our limited perspective as we are locked in time and space. But the God of all creation who is outside of time and space can give us wisdom beyond what we could possibly comprehend on our own. So think about the world that we've experienced, the world we're experiencing right now. Just flip through, do some doom scrolling. What does the world look like? The wisdom of man's governments benefits a very few people and causes war with others. The wisdom of man's science solves one, one problem while creating unforeseen other ones, oftentimes worse than the first. The ease of technology it enslaves us to its whims, twisting the education that we think we have. It makes us think that we can solve and control problems around us. The beauty of the humanities of art is lost when man puts himself as the center. Again, the creature leaving out the creator. This was Satan's offer in the garden to give us knowledge without God, to give us supposed freedom away from bounds. But what we find, again, was enslavement to our brokenness. Because the reality is, if we aren't serving the Lord, we are serving something else. Ourselves, our appetites our whims that change daily and lead us nowhere and build nothing good. Paul tells us in Romans 6, 12 and 13, he says, Let sin therefore not reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been, brought, who have been bought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. See, pride is the central issue of sin going back to the garden. So the Spirit's appeal then is to lay aside our pride and to kiss the sun. This ancient practice of showing homage, of bending the knee, or what is called an oath of fealty. It's that idea that should bring to mind like a knight of the round table, you know, bending the knee to King Arthur, that type of a thing. It's saying, nope, not my will, but yours. King Arthur or, or whoever, this idea of fealty to a higher power and allegiance to the person on the throne. Martin Luther says this, the word kiss in this context is very powerful because it tells us to embrace the son with our whole heart and to see nothing or to hear nothing other than Christ and him crucified, which is from 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. This idea of bending the knee to true authority is seen in the Lord's prayer this idea that all we are all we could possibly need the only direction that possibly matters is obedience to God that's what the Lord's prayer is it's not it's not a nice little prayer that tells you you know how to thank God for bread and not be a sinner but it is to essentially show that in all things not my will but yours be done just as Christ did it is an example of bending the knee of kissing the hand of the one who is almighty and who is on the throne, who laughs at any attempt to put yourself in control. So essentially then the Lord's prayer is almost a prayer of salvation, really. Because nothing I do on my own could possibly bring me to salvation. And so bending my knee to God in all things is an example of what the psalmist tells here, tells us to do here. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Blessed are those who take refuge in him, because at the moment, he is the lamb. But one day, he will return as the lion, as we see in the book of Revelation. Lately, I've been talking a lot about reconciliation for a lot of reasons. Uh, I taught on it recently. Uh, my my, My small group is going through 2 Corinthians, which is where the ministry of reconciliation is. Uh, I have to write a paper for Pastor Philip on reconciliation, and so it's been on my mind a lot. Um, But there's a very important part in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2, where Paul is quoting sections of the Old Testament. He's saying, Behold, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Now, specifically that one day that Paul's talking about? No, but it means immediately, like, you're running out of time. Today is the day of salvation. He is imploring us, be reconciled to the Father, be the one who is blessed in taking refuge in him, not the one whose wrath of God is coming to crush him. Blessed is the man, happy is the man, fortunate and joyful is the man who does not follow the wicked, who does not hang out with the scoffers. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, who bends the knee to the son who sits on the throne, George, George Whitfield, a famous pastor, said this. He says, the king of the church has them all in a chain. Be kind to them, pray for them, but fear them not. He says this when thinking about those that are outside of salvation. Because as we bend the knee to the Lord and the world rages around us, we think, but Lord, what about all these other problems? Shouldn't I do something about them? Should I be scared? He says, pray for them, but don't worry about them. Because the Lord sits on the throne and he laughs at their attempts to be in charge of themselves. Ultimately, though, we have a choice. Are we going to align ourselves to the kingdoms of the world? Or are we going to bend our knee to the king who created the world? That is what I want us to see as we walk through the book of Psalms. Can you put back up the picture the the for the um, sermon series? So, essentially, uh, Jilly made this for me today. Yay, Jilly. Uh, but this is the king of... Israel, going through the good times of Israel to the fall of Israel in the middle. So these are the five books. And then of Christ looking back, he is the ultimate one that the psalmist points to, the messianic hope that uh, we saw in that video earlier uh, that we all should look to. Jesus is throughout the Old Testament. Is it directly talking about Jesus? No, we're not trying to intentionally read things in there, but we see them looking towards, forwards to hope. Their salvation is coming in the Messiah, and we're fortunate to be on this side of the cross to look back and go, I know who that salvation was. I know who that messianic king is, and he is sitting on his throne laughing at the world's attempts to overtake him, and we sit here waiting for the second advent, the second time that he will come, not as the lion, or not as the lamb, but as the lion to set things right. he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So tonight, as we start on our journey through the Psalms together, I want us to look at it in humility, not looking at the book of Psalms as a way for us to, to have some sort of behavior modification and make us better people, but as a way to look at who God truly is through his word, who God truly is through the lived experiences of the people of the Old Testament, who God truly is as the anointed one, the one in whom we can find refuge as he sits on his throne. Are we looking forward excitedly for the coming of the messianic king, for his second return to set all things right? Or we like that verse in Hebrews where it is a fear of an unexpected doom on its way because we are not on the right side. The right side of history is important, but it's not the right side of the immediate history. It's the right side of eternity of where we find ourselves. Are we with the eternal king, the one who sits on the throne? Are we standing with the world who builds nothing of worth, worthless chaff that's blown away and burned up in the end? What are we building our lives upon? Are we meditating on God's word? Are we spending time praying continually? Are we seeking to be used by God to point out the contrast between godliness and ungodliness in the world around us in our generation? I pray that our time over the next now 12 sermons uh, through Psalms will be very fruitful for us. And that as we were praying earlier, that people would meet Jesus through the pages of the Old Testament, through the pages of Psalms, the poetic words that were left for us by our spiritual forefathers to understand who the God of creation is. guys, this is Matt O'Mealy, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to REACH. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of REACH Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that is defined by real transformation and the sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.